So we started out thinking that today's show would be entirely about the life, legacy, and complicated uh, message behind the music of Richard Wagner. We have Alex Ross, a music writer for The New Yorker, and Steve Metcalf here to do that. And then we thought, well, we should talk about Wagner for a while, but we should also talk about music in general and the status of orchestral music and the kinds of music that is written by serious composers. And so we're going to talk about that, too. What's happening here in the middle of COVID and and also in the middle of Black Lives Matter and different conversations about representation. So I don't know. That all sounds kind of confusing. But believe me, it'll be crystal clear on the other side of the news. Don't you play something? What would you like me to play? Wagner. The entry of the gods into Valhalla. A little anemic without the orchestra. Kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit, kill the wabbit. Kill the wabbit. Yo ho, yo ho, yo ho, yo ho. Out Caesar, out Nolus. Emperor of the world. (laughs) All right, so that was an opening montage. (laughs) had such things in it as the indispensable Alien Covenant. Uh, And, of course, uh, Charlie Chaplin and wedged in between the two of them, uh, Elmer Fudd, um, all under the spell of Wagner in one way or another or reacting to Wagner in one way or another. I insisted on the Elmer Fudd thing because, uh, well, Elmer and I were at Betty Ford together, uh, and he was really a very broken person at that point. Partly because he thought it was uh, Betty Fudd. He thought he was at his mother's house. He didn't realize he was in treatment. All right, so uh, I'm not going to explain any more about that other than to say that this is our way of getting into a show uh, about Wagner and specifically about Wagnerism. Uh, And to do that, uh, we are joined by Alex Ross, who has been the music critic at The New Yorker since 1996. His new book, Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music, is the reason we're doing this show. Uh, He's joining us through the miracle of Skype. And of course, we would not undertake this show without our own musical guru, Steve Metcalf, Director Emeritus at the University of Hartford, Hartford's President's College, and my frequent collaborator on all kinds of probably ill-conceived musical and artistic enterprises, although it's much harder to collaborate in the era of COVID. But welcome to both of them. Uh, And so, Alex Ross, welcome back to our show. Hi, Colin. It's great to be back. So um, maybe just begin with 
the the word that is the title of the book. This is not a, bio, a biography of of, uh, of Wagner by any means. It really is more of a, a biography of Wagnerism. But then explain to the listeners what is meant by that. Yes, well, this uh, problematic figure, uh, Richard Wagner, uh, falls dead on the second page of the book <laughs> um, in Venice in 1883. And the idea is everything that happens after that is the aftermath um, of this um, extraordinary and eternally controversial uh, composer. I do tell quite a bit of the story of his life at various stages in the book um, and touch on uh, uh, most of his uh, major works, but really the story is about how people listened to Wagner, how they reacted to him. Um, And the word Wagnerism has come into circulation to describe um, a remarkably widespread movement um, in the arts, in literature and cultural life, especially at the end of the 19th um, century and the beginning of the 20th, where so many of the really major figures of that period had some kind of relationship with with Wagner. Sometimes it was positive, sometimes it was negative, often it was highly ambivalent. But it seemed as if you sort of had to have a stance on Wagner. Uh, so I talk about Baudelaire and Mallarmé and Mark Twain and Walt Whitman and George Eliot and Virginia Woolf, Thomas Mann, uh, Marcel Proust, uh, uh, Willa Cather, uh, Vasily Kandinsky. It goes on and on and on. Um, and I found it to be a really fascinating story of how one art form affects others. Uh, so I actually don't talk about how Wagner affected music per se. I'm really interested in this question of how uh, uh, those in neighboring art forms reacted to this really powerful uh, impetus uh, from the world of, of music right up to the present. So it, it goes to the present day. Well, Mr. McGaff, I'd like to know what you make uh, of that. Particularly, you know, I mean, you know, there there is no such word really as Mozartian or Beethovenian or Bach esque. You know, there's Wagnerian, and and I think as Alex is suggesting, one of the reasons that that word lives and thrives is that it can't be confined to music. Well, and and there's no reason why it should be. I I must say, and first of all, Alex, congratulations. This is just a monumental piece of work. Um, uh, which we'll all be uh, poring over for a long time. I Thank you so uh, much. I have to say, since Alex himself mentioned Twain a moment ago, that before I forget to do this, because we in Hartford consider ourselves great custodians, of course, of the Twain legacy, and uh, because he lived here for almost twenty years. Um, but uh, whenever you mention Twain and Wagner in the same paragraph, much less sentence, you always get people sort of knowingly say, oh, yes, and how about that amusing quote that uh, Twain came up with that said, you know, Wagner's music is is better than it sounds. And among many other uh, important contributions, Alex gently points out that that is incorrect, that in fact, that quote uh, is uh, belongs to a 19th century humorist named Bill Nye, and uh, Twain simply uh, appropriated it from time to time. It's a great quote, of course. It's a very uh, pithy uh, little epigram. Uh, I, I think, incidentally, that the that the Twain gift shop is going to have to maybe revise its inventory a little bit because a few years ago I saw in that shop a, an attractive set of note cards that had that quote 
printed on it. So <laughs> if nothing else, uh, uh, Alex has done us all a great service by pointing out the true author of that. Right. To say nothing of the promo for the, uh, that I did for this show, which is also incorrect. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I mean, there's so many places uh, that we we, we want to go here, but um, you know, maybe just very quickly, even though this is not a biography, uh, Alex, give us a sense of the person we would have met. Had we met Wagner, you know, sometime in the mid to late 19th century, what sort of person mm -hmm. we're going to be talking a lot about his legacy and how he's interpreted and ways in which some of his less tol tol tolerable ideas were put to use. But what sort of person would we have met in a thumbnail? Yeah, well, you probably wouldn't have gotten a word in edgewise uh, because Wagner was an extraordinarily uh, voluble and, and restless and, and antic uh, personality, which is interesting because a lot of the iconography of Wagner, you, you see this brooding uh, patriarchal uh, figure with this sort of very, very grand uh, uh, manner uh, gazing out um, at, the, at the spectator. And in fact, he was, he was a little guy. Um, he was a clown. He was just always sort of running around and <clears throat> doing different voices and, you know, had to be the center of attention at, at any gathering. Um, he uh, was, I feel like he was an actor before he was anything else. Like as a kid, he loved to put on little shows. So his whole kind of world revolved around the theater and on, on putting on a show. Of course, he put on sort of the biggest shows almost that have ever existed, uh, but that was his fundamental personality. And, and so he involved himself in every aspect of the theater, not only writing the music, he wrote the texts for his operas, he directed uh, the productions, uh, he had kind of very interesting radical ideas about uh, how the, the theater should work. He more or less designed the theater at Bayreuth where his uh, operas were produced. Uh, and he was a, a sort of a, a theorist and, and polemicist and, and all of that conductor. Um, but, you know, these were all ways to, to bring to life his theatrical um, ideas. Um, and yeah, he was, he was a live wire. He was, he was extraordinarily complex and contradictory. Um, his, his positions were, were, were constantly changing, uh, as the years went by. Uh, he was, uh, impossible in a lot of ways, uh, financially irresponsible, uh, uh, sexually, uh, misbehaving. Uh, he was, he could be sort of brutally manipulative, um, in how he treated, uh, people around him. And of course he was one of the most ferocious, uh, anti-Semites, uh, of his day. Um, so yeah, he was not an attractive uh, man in uh, a lot of ways, but he was, incredibly industrious. I and mean, that's something that always strikes me, strikes me about Wagner is he did build these incredibly complex, huge works um, and, and was composing them at a time when he seemed, it seemed impossible that they would get on stage because he was, he had to go into exile from German speaking lands in 1849 after participating in, in the revolutions. And, and there was just no prospect um, in the early 1850s, really, for this colossal ring of the Nibelung cycle to reach the stage. But he went ahead and, and composed it anyway. So there was, you know, amid all the chaos, um, there was something extraordinarily focused and <laughs> determined about Wagner's, uh, this willpower to sort of bring unlikely ideas to fruition. So I'm going to play a little clip uh, now from a BBC show called Desert Island Discs, which I think has been running for 
like 37 years or something uh, in which famous people talk about in the music that they would bring to a desert island. I, I'm guessing you will recognize the voice of the person talking, but if, if you don't, I will tell you afterwards. Music either seems to sort of cheer me up or touch me, and I think of all the most romantic tunes I've ever heard. This touches me and almost has a physical effect on me. So if you didn't recognize the voice, that was John Cleese of Monty Python talking, and that's uh, <laughs> the prelude to Tristan and Isolde there. So, Metcalf, there there are kind of two ways to think about this, and I, I know which way that you think. So one way to think about this is this guy is an, he's, he is an opera maker. He's a maker of opera. That's really the way that you have to think about him. No opera, no Wagner, no Wagnerism anyway. But another way to think of it, you know, I mean, I just sort of started geeking out on these instrumental preludes yesterday. And, geez, they're so freaking gorgeous, one after another, and very transporting. I find myself thinking, what if he hadn't done operas and just wrote for the orchestra? You know, what kind of figure would he be at that point? But I think you subscribe to the former point of view, yes? Well, I don't, I'm not sure it's quite as uh, cut and dried as that. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people have made the point that, uh, that even for people who don't necessarily consider themselves to be great aficionados of, of the operas themselves, that the preludes and the vorspiels uh, that he wrote, and, and many of the operas have more than one, um, have become, I, I would say... Um, to use a dangerous word, I would say have become sort of beloved in a way that perhaps, uh, for the most part, the operas aren't. In other words, and, and I can almost picture Alex rolling his eyes here a little bit, but uh, but I think in some respects the operas uh, over the years have been more respected and sort of, you know, greeted with a kind of awe and, and reverence, perhaps, rather than a genuine... I don't know, sort of visceral affection of the sort that people might feel for Verdi or Puccini. Um, uh, and an exception to that might be the might be the preludes, which I think in many cases people do love. Yeah, Alex, just react to that. Well, um, I, I certainly see that. And, you know, the, the, the orchestral excerpts, um, I mean, it's, they are among the most universally recognized pieces of music that exist. You know, the, the Ride of the Valkyries, uh, of course, has been used in hundreds of films and everyone knows it from Apocalypse Now and Bugs Money, Bugs Bunny and everything else. Um, and uh, the Tristan prelude is, is also uh, uh, just, these are, these are uh, 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 just landmarks of, of, you know, musical history that, that just sort of uh, speak uh, very, very broadly, almost universally. But at the same time, I would say you know, all of these excerpts, all of these pieces, when you take them out of context, their meaning does change. Um, and 
I think it's actually a problem to some extent that people know Wagner only through these snippets, uh, divorced from their uh, dramatic context. And, and the Ride of the Valkyries is is one example. You know, we we now associate it with male military heroism, but you know, this is the music for the uh, for the Valkyries, uh, the, the the powerful women uh, riding through the air uh, on their on their horses. And so the, the the meaning of that music has been sort of changed beyond recognition. Another example, actually is the entry of the gods into Valhalla, which um, we heard uh, on the piano in your introduction um, from uh, from the movie uh, Alien Covenant. Um, and what's interesting there is sort of taken out of context, it sounds very grand. It sounds uh, as it has this sort of uh, steely kind of magnificent sound and, and you associate it with the, the character of that, of that um, dangerous superior uh, android character in the movie. But, you know, that music is is a catastrophe. You know, the end of Rheingold, this is the gods marching to their doom uh, because, you know, they've built this this splendid palace um, on uh, on uh, false grounds uh, uh, and the, the giants who, who, who built it had to be paid off with the cursed ring um, and the fact that they have refused to return the ring to its rightful place in the in the uh, Rhine is the sign of their doom. Um, and so this is this is a, an ironic uh, spectacle. And you hear amidst that music um, the the Rheingold's pleading uh, for it to be returned and saying, uh, "What is trusty and true is down below. All all that above is is uh, is." false um, and, and cowardly. Um, and, and so it's very interesting how, how the meaning changes when you take it out of the, uh, the dramatic context. And actually, for me, it just becomes much more interesting, uh, much more, uh, it's, it's just richer layers of, of human meaning when you restore this music to the psychological context of the operas. All right, so we've come this far without turning over, except for one little aside, I think, from Alex, without turning over the big dark dark rock here and looking underneath it. Um, so in order to get us started on that and not have it be too dark, uh, let's let Woody Allen get us going. I sit through the ice hockey game and you watch the whole opera. I can't listen to that much Wagner, you know? I start to get the urge to conquer Poland. Well, that would be one of the nicer ways that you could handle this problem. Uh, but uh, yes, Mr. Metcalf, as Alex has already said, Wagner is a ferocious uh, anti-Semite in his own lifetime. But it's sort of what goes on after that, right, that begins to make his entire legacy super problematic. Well, it certainly has done that uh, in our own time. Although I, I am interested in this question. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll ask Alex directly there. My, my sort of informal impression is that for many years, Wagner's anti-Semitism, although it was certainly known to scholars and musicologists, was not quite the public issue that it became, I don't know what, 15 or 20 years ago, that, that, that he sort of got a pass in some kind of odd way uh, for that, as, as well as for some other things, um, simply because people were so, I think, overwhelmed by the music or maybe intimidated by, the, by the, just the, the force of Wagnerism 
that, that it seemed kind of almost uh, inappropriate to dwell too much on the anti-Semitism piece. It, it, am I right in saying that that really has only been a topic of really wide public discussion in the last couple of decades or so? Uh, I would say going back to the 1960s and 70s, uh, uh, and when it sort of really started coming to the forefront. But yeah, especially, I would say the last 30 years, uh, it's become a, a very tom dominant topic in terms of how people perceive Wagner. In fact, I find that that sort of just generally talking to, to sort of random people when I'm describing my project, um, the one thing that people actually know about Wagner now is that he was Hitler's favorite composer. Um, yeah. And that's sort of the extent of a lot of people's knowledge. Uh, so it is, it is now very widely known. Um, the Woody Allen uh, joke is is kind of funny. I mention it in my book, actually, because it's actually not quite as funny as it used to be, I think, <laughs> because the question of separating art from the artist, which, of course, has long haunted Wagner, has now uh, is now haunted haunting Woody himself. Allen himself. Um, so, you know, these questions of, you know, how we deal with uh, the dark past of artists are, are very much in the news now. And the thing about Wagner is, you know, people have been attacking this problem for a very long time uh, because it, it first became known um, that he was uh, an anti-Semite all the way back in the 1850s. Um, and you find people in the British press around 1854 and 1855 raising the question of, you know, how can we how can we, you know, deal with this man who has such uh, abhorrent uh, views? Um, and and the controversy flared in, in a very major way again in in the, the 1870s in, in Germany after Wagner made the disastrous decision to republish this anti-Semitic essay, which had at first been published anonymously, and people sort of gradually forgot about it. And, and he sort of sent it back into circulation in 1869. Um, and so the the controversy has gone on a generation after generation. Um, but yeah, I think it's something that that was sort of waved away and and kind of swept under the rug for a long time by people who loved Wagner's music and just didn't really want to confront this. And so they said, well, you know, the music is is sublime, the operas are sublime. He was a terrible man, but you know, never mind that. Let's just focus on the music. Um, mm -hmm. But the line of inquiry, which really came to the fore. I think especially in the 80s and, and 90s, um, was that no, these problems are inherent in the works themselves uh, and not just in his biography. Um, and so we can see, or that the claim is, we can see traces of his anti-Semitism in the operas themselves. That remains a very controversial idea, but it's not one to be dismissed. Um, and there's and there's some strong evidence for it or some you know, strong arguments for it. So yeah, this this problem is, is, is with us forever, and there's no looking away from it. So uh, we're going to take a little break right now uh, and come back to this and also uh, about the work of people who kind of tried to posthumously save Wagner from himself um, and, uh, and and from that particular le legacy as well. Uh, I also want to say that in the third and final segment of the show, we're going to break away from Wagner and talk just a little bit uh, with the two uh, aficionados of music here about music, performative music uh, in the time of COVID and what the future may or may not hold. Uh, but as we go out here, we've mentioned and some of the very familiar uh, pieces of Wagner's music that has have seeped into popular culture and to daily life in general. Although uh, Maestro Metcalf reminded us we had better use this one too. 
put on the music. You think? Yeah, I use Wagner. It scares the hell out of the slopes. My boys love it. Hey, we're gonna play music. Big Duke Six Eagle Thrust. Put on Cywar up. Make it loud. And the Romeo Fox Trot. Shall we dance? This is a show about Wagner and Wagnerism, and a little bit later about the future of performed uh, music, especially orchestral and chamber performed music. Uh, We are so fortunate today to have with us, uh, well, two guys we've actually gotten together in the past for a similar conversation. Steve Metcalf, Director Emeritus of the University of Hartford's President's College and our musical guru. Uh, Alex Ross, a music critic at The New Yorker. His new book, Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music. So... Mr. Metcalf, before I go back to Alex on this, you know, as you as somebody who has reported on, studied and participated in the life uh, of symphony orchestras and opera companies, you know, particularly in an age where you really want to open the experience up as much as possible to lots and lots of people, to, you know, to people who, who maybe aren't, you know, the, the typical classical music audience. How big a problem is everything we were just talking about, about Wagner? In other words, if you're the managing director of a symphony or a managing director of an opera company, how big a disincentive do you think there is these days to uh, against staging any kind of Wagner evening? Well, uh, I, as a matter of fact, I was just going to ask you if Alex, in his research for this book, you know, we, we live in this age now of the so-called cancel culture. Uh, I, I guess I'm not personally aware of any, you know, sort of eminent opera houses that have simply declared a ban on producing Wagner operas, although there may, there may be some, and Alex may be aware of them. I noticed that there's a new production of uh, Valkyrie just uh, taking shape in Berlin as we speak. Uh, so apparently in Germany, this is not the case, but, um, you know, one of the reasons that I was, uh, interested in the question of when did Wagner's anti-Semitism begin to be, uh, really public, publicly discussed is for this very reason. Like, is there a point at which you have to say, well, uh, we, we just can't justify putting these works on the stage in the 21st century. And um, so, so I guess I'll, I'll throw this to Alex and ask whether he's aware of any, any companies that have taken a strict position on this. Yeah, go ahead on that, Alex. Although maybe we should just quickly say, uh, Alex Ross, before we get to that, is that the Berlin production uh, that Mr. Metcalf is referring to right now is one of so many in which I would sort of put this in the category of people trying to save Wagner from himself or from his past. This is a international refugee themed production. This is about the plight of refugees in terms of its staging, its theatrics. Uh, it would have a much more inclusive uh, embrace the little guy message than what we typically associate with Wagnerian supremacy. 
Yeah, I'm not actually aware of international opera companies uh, avoiding Wagner altogether for this reason, uh, aside, of course, from from the unofficial ban on uh, Wagner's music in Israel uh, and in uh, concert halls as well. But, you know, I think in terms of, I mean, there's, there's several different problems here. I mean, first of all, uh, it's problematic, despite everything that we know, everything negative that we know about Wagner, to sort of view the operas as these dangerous mechanisms that, you know, inject uh, hatred and bigotry uh, into people, you know, because, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is, uh, although it's theorized that certain characters in Wagner uh, may be based on anti-Semitic uh, stereotypes, there are no Jewish characters uh, explicitly uh, in the operas. Um, and, you know, when you, when you talk about anti-Semitism in the arts, you know, there's, there's a, a very long list of, of works in which there are uh, explicit uh, anti-Semitic or problematic uh, depictions of Jewish people. Uh, Shakespeare, uh, Dickens, uh, uh, Edgar Degas, uh, uh, the list is a very long one. Um, and so the, the problem is, is more uh, oblique um, in Wagner's case. And, you know, the the way these operas are staged nowadays, you can put all that on stage. And for decades now, people have been taking up the problems of Wagner's history, his biography, and, and the reception of the uh, of the works, and confronting that very directly on stage. So sort of uh, transferring the operas to a uh, sort of fascist-style uh, setting, uh, even, even depicting, uh, incorporating the Holocaust uh, into a staging of a Wagner opera, and sort of uh, turning these operas uh, against uh, Nazi ideology uh, is something that has been done many, many times. Uh, and in fact, you know, there are many aspects of Wagner's work and really of his political views um, as well that, that, that point away from Nazi ideology. I mean, the common thread there is anti-Semitism, but in terms of uh, Wagner's political beliefs, I mean, he tended often toward uh, a sort of a, a socialistic or even kind of anarchistic view of the state and was hostile to the idea of, of the militarized uh, state. He turned against uh, the, the, the German empire at the end of his life. Um, and, you know, for so long, he was associated with the political left. And, you know, one thing I talk about in the book, which is very important, is that he was a hero of the political left through the 19th century and into the 20th century. Uh, the left saw him as their own, and when the Nazis uh, appropriated him, they, they saw that as a distortion uh, of, of Wagner's real identity. Yeah, I think um, there's this, there's this so, great scene in your book where, or it's not a scene, but it's a, a story, uh, it's 1933, uh, and Thomas Mann uh, is decided that he's going to give this lecture where, you know, once again, I think it's an example of somebody trying to save Wagner, at least from perceptions of him, who he might be, and, and to embrace him in some of the ways that you're referring to. And, and he gives the lecture in Switzerland only to find out that he can't go back to Germany, that those exact forces that you're uh, talking about, uh, Alex, uh, have in fact ex excluded him from his own home. Yeah, yeah, it was actually, it was, he went abroad in uh, early February uh, 1933 to, to give a series of lectures. It was, it was actually in Amsterdam, 
Paris and, and Brussels. And uh, the Nazis denounced the lecture um, because he was pulling Wagner away from Nazi ideology uh, and stressing the, the the leftist side of, of Wagner's convictions. So he was he was uh, attacked, um, and just for all kinds of reasons, it became apparent uh, that he should not go back to Germany. But that's a tremendous irony that you know this great monumental German writer went into exile as he was giving a lecture tour on Wagner. Um, and, and, you know, it was sort of the die was cast. Uh, and he was actually lucky to be, to be out of uh, Germany on that tour at that time. And so Mann was, was one of many, many people who, who loved Wagner and, and saw the Nazi uh, appropriation of him as, as uh, uh, almost an abuse, as, as, a, as a misuse uh, of this work. So uh, we're going to segue a little bit here. Um, well, you know, m- maybe one way to do this is we're going to talk a little bit about uh, John Williams uh, and uh, actually a, a conversation that Alex had with uh, John Williams. But uh, Metcalf, one of the things that comes up in that conversation is that Williams saying uh, eventually that he came to realize the incredible influence uh, on uh, of Wagner on movie composers. But I hadn't really thought about that. But, you know, you really can hear an awful lot of Wagner in, you know, maybe even Bernard Herrmann or somebody like that. Oh, absolutely. Well, in fact, it it often, well, a lot of people have written about this. You know, the guys who really established what movie music sounds like, which were the, you know, the expatriates like like, um, Max Steiner and Franz Waxman and Korngold and these guys, you know, they they all had uh, essentially a sort of German... Uh, based training, a, a, a very classical European training, and so that was the harmonic language that they knew and that, that and that they used when they came to Hollywood with with actual actually rather little, uh, you know, sort of uh, concession to what was uh, going on in music uh, in the States at that time. Uh, so you have a, a kind of a tradition that I think, even through John Williams himself continues to this day in which that sound world uh, is, is kind of what we think of as the Hollywood uh, harmonic language. You know, I mean, I, I think uh, uh, I think the ride of the Valkyries, you know, could could be a John Williams score when you come right down to it. I mean, I, I, I think I think Richard Strauss gets a little bit of an extra credit for for John. But uh, um, but but absolutely, that was the world that they that they knew and that was the world that they brought to Hollywood and 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 in and in many respects you know in James Horner's music and on Zimmer that that sound world still is very much alive well let's hear a little bit of that sound world in a very familiar to everybody context So, Alex Ross, uh, as I recall uh, your interview, at one point you start talking about leitmotifs uh, with Williams and then segue from there to Wagner. And he almost seems a little uncomfortable w- with that segue at first. 
Yeah, well, you know, he's actually not the biggest fan of Wagner's uh, music and and uh, told me about um, an experience that he had uh, watching the Ring Cycle um, in Hamburg, uh, I believe it was. And he said he was, frankly, very bored. <laughs> um, and and so, you know, he his principal influences, I think, um, come not so much from the from the German end of things, although of course uh, he's learned from from Wagner's orchestration and Mikael Strauss's orchestration. But you know, there's also a lot of Copland and Stravinsky, a lot of jazz influence, Duke Ellington um, in his in his music. And so he is very much an American composer uh, who who sort of draws on these German uh, romantic uh, influences, but uses them in a very particular way. Um, and it's there's a kind of just brighter, sharper sound um, to Williams's uh, brass writing than than you'd find in in Wagner, for example. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, he acknowledges the deep role that Wagner played in movie music history, going right back to the beginning, where it was determined at a very early stage, you know, Wagner was going to be the model for how we how we bring music in conjunction with pictures and, you know, have, use leitmotifs to assign these tags to different characters and different situations. So anytime uh, you saw horses galloping across the screen, you know, very often the, the movie house pianist would play the Ride of the Valkyries. And, and so it's sort of these sort of musical shortcuts uh, borrowing on Wagner. Um, and then kind of even more interesting is when Hollywood starts drawing on uh, Wagner's mythic themes and these these archetypes of, you know, the magic ring, you know, the ring of power, uh, the young man, the young hero discovering his unknown capabilities and the, the holy grail and the cursed wanderer. So all of these all of these archetypes that, that Wagner used so brilliantly, he didn't invent any of them. Uh, but he modernized them and and sort of injected them into the the late nineteenth century cultural imagination in a way that just has stuck and and so they just continue being replayed uh, over and over and you know Star Wars has Wagnerian resemblances and resonances the matrix movies uh, obviously the Lord of the Rings is is you know sort of heavily steeped um, in Wagner because j r r tolkien knew his his Wagner very well and so just Wagner is lurking there in all kinds of ways and yeah it was, it was interesting you know Williams was you know acknowledged all of that but sort of wanted to stand apart somewhat in terms of his own personal creative identity and he has every right to because you know that theme that he right. just played uh, from Star Wars it, it definitely has a Wagnerian sound to it but it's also it's John Williams you know? but I think I mean, that's not the only reason yeah, I, I think that's not the only yeah. reason he wanted to stand aside uh, from Wagner yeah. but, um, but but anyway we have to pause there uh, we're going to take a break I feel as though we have not really done justice to this book now part of the reason for that is it's this amazing you know high 600 pages of text uh, book Wagnerism and it is uh, you know such it, it is such a great example and I, I think Steve agrees with me about this that it's when you, t you, t you take one thing Wagnerism, and then you use it to learn about everything. Uh, I mean, this is just an incredible survey uh, of Western culture uh, over the span uh, of a couple of hundred years or more. And so there's no possible way we could have done justice to it. Uh, but it's uh, Alex Ross's amazing book. Alex and Steve will be back. Uh, I want to probe both of their minds using my Vulcan powers uh, about the future of music. That's a whole different franchise I'm referencing, actually.
I'm going to explain to you what that is in just a second. Oh, we're actually coming towards a much more melodic payoff there, but I, I, I keep the show moving here. Uh, first, I have to thank Kat Pastor. She's there in the studio, and she's the one firing off all these music, uh, musical clips and, and movie clips, and in general, keeping things humming and making it possible for the rest of us to function remotely. And the rest of us includes Jonathan McPants, who is the producer of this particular episode. Uh, we are now returning to Steve Metcalf and to Alex Ross, uh, Alex's book of Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music has been the occasion for a really interesting conversation. But now, Steve, first of all, uh, we should say that uh, what you were hearing uh, was Banner by Jesse Montgomery. Uh, by, from what I can tell, one of the kind of really exciting young composer performers that's performed by the Catalyst Quartet on strum. Strum, yeah, strum. Music for uh, strings. So, Steve, I'm going to have you kind of set up this conversation. You thought that as long as we were doing the show, we should have a conversation about where performed music is right at this moment uh, on the putative health uh, of some of the really great um, opera and, and symphony companies. But but ask the question the way you want to ask it, and then we'll we'll get going. Well, among other things, I mean, needless to say, one of the many, many particular tragedies of the of the COVID <clears throat> experience for all of us has been its effect on the performing arts. And, um, you know, I think we all share the perception that uh, the arts and certainly the arts as they are performed to live audiences of any size will be the very last thing that comes kind of back into the life of all of us as as this pandemic hopefully winds down at some point. And, and so that has given rise, I think, to all of us wondering, well, what, what are the performing arts and music in particular in this case going to look like? What changes will we see? What, what um, you know, will, will all of the effects of COVID be negative? Might, might there be some sense in which the post-COVID era uh, actually produces some fresh thinking that that invigorates uh, music and classical music. So I, I certainly don't pretend to have the answer. I, I will say that the clip you just played by this exceedingly gifted young New York-based composer, Jesse Montgomery, is, is perhaps a hopeful sign in the, sense that, in the sense that the classical music, at least I think as many of us perceive it, had just begun to wrestle very meaningfully with with the question of Black Lives Matter and of, uh, you know, inclusiveness, both among the ranks of performers and composers and conductors and what have you, uh, when the pandemic struck. And so one question is, will that particular effort be able to be resumed uh, at the moment that the danger is over or will there be additional obstacles somehow? Yeah, Alex, just go ahead and react to that. You know, first of all, it is a very, very serious situation with the performing arts. And, you know, so many institutions were already struggling with the fact that, that many people just can't be bothered so much to, to go out in the evening and prefer to stay at home, you know, watching, uh, 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 you know, streaming entertainment. Um, and then we entered a period where people were forced uh, to stay at home. Uh, and so the, the, the problem was redoubled and just all revenue stopped. And immediately a whole long list of institutions uh, uh, um, entered in a matter of weeks or even days, a state of severe crisis. And then you think about all the freelance 
musicians, you know, all of the, the, the chamber players and singers and, and, you know, people in new music groups and, and, and all these others who are sort of, you know, more who don't have that, that um, uh, uh, union salary with an orchestra. Um, and I'm worried that a whole lot of them are just going to give up and sort of give up on music and, and just sort of find uh, another job. So, so it, is, it is a very serious state of affairs. And, and I would urge anyone who does have the resources to uh, support their local performing arts uh, groups to, to do so because they need help uh, for real. You know, whether there could be some uh, upside to all this, you know, remains to be seen. Um, I think, you know, there, there was a state of complacency in classical music for a long time and a kind of state of affairs where where people were, were were coasting along and not confronting some some deeper challenges in terms of uh, developing the audience and you notice a tendency there, I think there was too much touring and unnecessary uh, you know wasteful uh, tours of ensembles all over the world and, and conductors who are jet setting to and fro and you know if music sort of shifts to a more local focus you know that would be a good thing and then in terms of shaking up the repertory i mean i've complained since the moment i first started writing about music for a living in 1992 that 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 uh we haven't been playing enough new music and then in classical music we have this abnormal uh severe bias uh toward the past as wonderful as all the composers of the past are we need to hear the voices of the present and i think um black lives matter and other social justice movements of our day and 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 me too should make us focus on that problem anew and realize that the way to confront the problems surrounding not just Wagner, but, you know, so many of the major figures in our canon, you know, uh, uh, there are, there's racism and misogyny in the Mozart operas. Um, uh, Handel uh, invested in a slavery company. Uh, there's anti-Semitism in the Bach passions. You know, there's, there's systemic issues in our canon. And the way to deal with that is, of course, not to stop playing those composers, but to counterbalance them against music of the present, and especially the voices of Black composers and female composers um, and transgender composers, and, and to sort of have a more diverse representation. And I, um, I do want to in, say, I want to, give some, I want to give some props to uh, Mr. Metcalf, who founded and ran uh, a new chamber series at, uh, at Hart School that really did that, really introduced an awful lot of new music, mm -hmm. to me anyway, uh, that I wouldn't have otherwise heard. Steve, we only have about a minute left, but I think, you know, an, another part of this is just, you, you are the father of a professional musician and the father-in-law of a professional musician. And I feel like that generation, they're just not going to put up uh, ultimately with with music that that isn't more inclusive or representational. Oh, I'm being told that Metcalf can't hear me anyway. All right. So uh, <laughs> we have a little technical problem. Well, we're just about done with the show anyway. So maybe. Uh, well, can you hear take, me? <laughs> yeah, I can hear you, Alex. Maybe. Uh, yeah, we've only got. Uh, well, what about, Steve would have said was. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. So why don't we end, actually? So Alex had a terrific piece recently uh, talking about the L.A. Philharmonic uh, and uh, doing uh, finally uh, getting back up on their feet uh, to do a live performance. And, and a lot of it revolved around the fifth movement of Ravel's uh, Mother Goose. Uh, so let's end with that because it ends so nicely anyway. Thanks to Alex Ross and to the now zoomed off into the distance uh, Steve Metcalf for this wonderful day of conversation. <laughs>